0: Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 9.30 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon.
1: There will be no more night, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever, let the church of Jesus Christ say. Amen. Church, we are nearing the end of our seven-week tour of the book of Revelation. And so as the tour bus makes its last pass through the final words of Revelation this week and next week, I want to be sure that you are ready to depart. So check under your seats and secure all your loose baggage Our trip is nearing its finale. For the past several weeks, we've been looking at selections from the book of Revelation under the heading, living with the end in mind. A phrase that cleverly discloses to you what our understanding is about what the book of Revelation is all about. It's A book that discloses something about the end of all things and what it discloses teaches us something about how we might begin living right now. Revelation is a book both about what is and also what is yet to be. Each week, with every new selection that we have read, I have asked two questions. First, I've asked, what is the good news in this text? And then also, what is the challenge to the church? What is it that we need to celebrate as gospel good news each week? And then what is it that we need to hear that will help us live Jesus-focused, spirit-driven, kingdom-minded lives today? And today is no exception. Today we're asking the same two questions. What is the good news in today's reading? And what is there that challenges us in our faith? Now, church, you should know that I do not mind coming up with sermon titles for each week's sermon, unlike my fabulous colleague here. But sometimes, church, sometimes, and Paul will just sit back and laugh at this, the title that I come up with on Tuesday is not necessarily the sermon I end up writing. The process of moving from text to theme to title to actual sermon material is fluid, not linear. And I often find myself finishing a sermon and thinking, now why did I pick that title? Now this week, my title isn't too far off. It's just slightly incomplete. You'll find that I've titled it The Light, The Book, and The Throne, which is a nice three-part Title we humans do a great job of remembering things that come in threes And so it sounded pretty good on Tuesday when I notified our administrative assistant Kelly that this would be the sermon title for this week But while you might like things that come in threes Church I need to modify the title slightly To the temple the light the book and the throne. I know it's super catchy I'm pretty sure that just by saying the new title out loud, three of you are ready to give your lives to the Lord, and five of you have upped your pledge for next year. So, thank you. The temple, the light, the book, and the throne. In the depiction of what God's kingdom come will be like that we have here in Revelation 21 and 22, we find a poetic description of the emergence of this absurdly large... And bedazzled city of gold and precious gems in which God is somehow personally and spatially present. We talked last week about the city's blueprints and architecture, the civitas dei, since Paul's using Latin today, the city of God, what Revelation calls the church, the bride of Christ. And Today, the description of this new habitation of God goes on a bit longer. And in today's selection, a passage that bridges chapters 21 and 22, four gospel realities present themselves to the church. We find four reports of good news. We might say that the medicine of the gospel today comes in four doses, or that the structure of the gospel today is built from four parts, or that the poem of today's gospel has four stanzas. Pick your image, church. John has given to us four metaphors, one for each part of today's announcement. Four metaphors, four nouns that stand in for four realities with abiding cosmic and present-day significance. The temple, the light, the book, and the throne let's get started if you have a copy of the scripture there in your order of worship you may want to reference it or if you have a pew bible you can turn to the very end we're in revelation 21 our first metaphor is that of a temple in revelation 21 verse 22 we read this I saw no temple in the city For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb." When John wrote these words, the very first group of Christians who heard it would have immediately thought about earthly Jerusalem. The Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in a vicious assault in AD 70 never to be rebuilt even to this day. The absence of the temple creates all sorts of questions in the lives of the first Christians who were also Jewish. If that is where God is located where now is God located? If that is where we go to be made holy, how now will we be made holy? If that is where we pilgrimage to, to celebrate the story of God, where will we go now? It's an existential, theological crisis. And when John foresees this heavenly city of Jerusalem, the question on the Jewish believers' minds who would have heard it is, well, what will the temple look like in this perfected reality? John dashes their hopes a bit. I saw no temple in the city. Temples are interesting places. Temples, worship spaces, are interesting places. They create thresholds. All of you this morning, whoever you are, wherever you've come from, you have crossed a threshold today. What we are doing here is not What you were doing when you woke up this morning, it is not what you will be doing in about another 30 or 40 minutes. You are here. You've come in for something. When you crossed into these doors, you are now in a different reality. We create a threshold when we gather for worship. We cross a threshold. We now say, okay, I'm done with my talking to my neighbor. Now I am moving into talking to God. It's a separate activity. Temples, worship spaces, also define boundaries. I have a colleague, Paul and I have a colleague, who is uh, uh, currently pastoring the first Presbyterian church of a small town and the second Presbyterian church of a different neighboring town who will not come together because we're not the same church. The pastor preaches once in the morning, drives 15 minutes, and preaches the same sermon to the second church. They both have about 25 people in worship. What is preventing them from joining boundaries? Buildings create boundaries. They create identities. They create people who come to that building. In the ancient world, temples established holiness. When you drew into the temple, you... Where if you were unclean, you could perform rites and actions that would enable you to be made clean. So now the question is: In this new Jerusalem, what does it mean that there is no temple? It means that in where in this new cosmic reality God is creating, there will be no longer a threshold between what is worship and what is not worship. It will all be worship. There will be no longer boundaries between what church meets and what building here, and what church meets and what building here. It will be all in one space. And there will no longer be a need for institutional, institutionally regulated holiness, because simply by being in this new Jerusalem, you are holy, because God and the Lamb have made you such. This reminds me that the, the aim of what we do here in worship is not to get better at worship. We're not, like, rehearsing for next Sunday. We're not going to, one day we're going to get it right, church. We, we messed up on a few things. You know, Carl played a few wrong notes. We'll fix that next week. You know, we're not trying to get better at worship. We are here in this space to experience communion with the Almighty. That is what we are preparing for. And while it comes and fits and starts in this mortal life, we anticipate a reality, and this is the gospel good news of this first metaphor, one day that will be our entire reality, communion with God. The challenge to the church, of course, on this side of glory is not to put our hope and our trust in brick and mortar to facilitate a relationship with God, but instead to seek that relationship wherever and however we can. The first metaphor we find in this text is the temple. The second metaphor that John gives to us is that of the light. In chapter 21 we read in verses 23 through 25 this, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God is its light and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Light. Throughout the Bible and in a great deal of poetry and novels outside of Scripture, the living of a human life has often been equated to taking a journey or walking on a path taking a road trip whatever the question posed in the Bible is not whether or not we are taking a journey but how do we know what is the right path to take it's a question that's even raised in the Psalms Psalm 119 how will the young know the right way how will we know how to go In the Old Testament, the answer is, study God's instruction to us in Torah. That is how you'll know. Study what God has said, you will know where to go. In the New Testament, the answer is, study Jesus Christ, who is God's instruction made flesh. That is how you'll know where to go. In both cases, the word of God expressed in the law, Torah, and the word of God incarnate in Jesus Christ is equated to, in the Bible, light, wisdom, truth, knowledge. In Psalm 119, we read this, the unfolding of your word brings light. In Psalm 36, we read, in your light we shall see light. In Psalm 119, we read again that your word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. In the Gospel of John, we read that in him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not overcome it. In John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. How will we know the way to go? We look to God for light in his word. Light is the preferred metaphor in Scripture for wisdom, or revelation, or truth. Nighttime, by contrast, is the metaphor for things that are confusing, or hidden, or sinful, or shameful. We're told here in Revelation 21 that in the New Jerusalem there will be no light from the sun or the moon, but that God and the Lamb will be the light. And to me, this is another way of saying that in this new cosmic reality, we will no longer experience God's knowledge, the knowledge of God, the revelation of God, the will of God, the the knowledge of where to go and how to live in part. But we will know it in full. Nothing will be left to the shadows of the night. There will be no night there at all. I don't think John is saying anything about how many hours there will be in the day in New Jerusalem or what the weather patterns will be like or whether the earth will continue to revolve around the sun or rotate on its axis. But rather, I think that John is saying that the knowledge of God in that day will shine perpetually and those in the city will know the Lord in a complete way as the ancient prophets foretold. The good news is that we will one day know God fully. The challenge now is, will we use the time we have to seek the light of Christ in the revelation of Scripture? Will we be people of the book looking for God's truth to us? The first metaphor was a temple. The second metaphor is light. The third metaphor is the book. Chapter 21, verse 26 and 27. People will bring into the city the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. When John wrote those words, there really wasn't a sense of a book the way we think about a book, bound at a spine, folded over. It would have been a scroll that was unfolded more than it would have been a book. But book is the word that we often use. The Lamb's Book of Life. Rome used to keep a census-based registry of all citizens of Rome so that if a person was arrested or accosted by a Roman soldier, they could claim their rights as a citizen of Rome. The Apostle Paul actually does this three times in the book of Acts. One in Acts 16, again in Acts 21, and most famously in Acts 22, where he says, you're not seriously going to beat a Roman citizen are you and everyone backed off and said oh no we wouldn't do that the citizenship role of Rome determined who gained access to legal channels travel routes and more and here in Revelation 21 John sees a book that he considers to be a citizenship scroll of the New Jerusalem and he says that it belongs to to the Lamb, who is the image of Jesus Christ in this book. Few images from the book of Revelation have captured the minds of Christians as the, quote, Lamb's book of life. As a child, I grew up in a church where I was asked repeatedly from the pulpit, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? I was told that that should be a question you would ask to convert a stranger to Christian faith. You ask them, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? And I got to tell you, church, I don't know! Uh, It was amazingly, uh, the, 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 the church tradition I grew up in seemed amazingly confident in the fact that, well, I know my name is there, I'm just not sure about yours. Um, it's a curious question, and it's not at all what I would suggest to you to be the first question to attempt to convert anybody to Christian faith. What is this book? The book of Revelation mentions it seven times throughout its pages, but not once does it ever tell us what's inside. Names, presumably, But whose names? John sees the book, but he doesn't get to look inside it. John understands that what is written in this book are the names of the citizens of the New Jerusalem. Those who are permitted to enter the city and enjoy the light and glory and justice of God. But who are those people? What is this book? How do you go about getting your name written into it? Bad news in Revelation 13 and 17 John says the names of the book were written inside it before the foundation of the world written before the world was created so however one's name appears inside it it won't be because of any good work we've done it won't be because of any prayer we prayed it won't be because of any amount of faith we demonstrate in Revelation 20 We find that all creation, dead and alive, will stand before God's throne. And the text says this, books were opened. Also, another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was, yikes, thrown into the lake of fire. Whatever is written in this book of life will be the method of determining who gains access to the new reality God is making. But whose names are in it? Is my name in it? Is yours? What about the person next to you? What about the person you pass later today on the street? How do we do? What do we do with Jack's checking in up there in the the choir rack to make sure? The image of a book with the names of the true citizens of heaven in it has passed through the generations of the church, and unfortunately, church, it has become a cudgel in the hands of some Christians, a weapon to be wielded against the supposedly unrighteous. Despite the fact that John never saw a single name that was written in it, some Christians today are remarkably convinced that they know who is in And they know who is out. And they have no trouble telling people whether they're in or whether they're out. All of this reminds me of a story that Flannery O'Connor tells in her book, or in her short story, Revelation. And you might not know the name Ruby Turpin, but I gotta tell you about Ruby Turpin because Flannery O'Connor really portrays this well. Ruby Turpin was a very well-to-do, outwardly well-mannered, white woman in the South, in the 60s. Fictional, in Flannery O'Connor's tale. And Ruby Turpin found herself one day sitting in the waiting room of a doctor's office with her husband, who had a leg ulcer. And Ruby Turpin is thinking to herself all sorts of judgmental thoughts about the other people in the waiting room while outwardly being very nice with her words. She started looking at the poor folks there whose words weren't as nice as hers and whose clothing wasn't well selected. She looked at people whose skin tone was different than hers and she had all sorts of negative, judgmental, racist thoughts to say about them in her head. But outwardly, she portrayed herself as a very kind incompetent person. But we learn a little bit about Ruby in the course of Flannery O'Connor's story. One of the things we learn is that Ruby Turpin had the same recurring dream every night where Jesus comes to her and says before she was born, now I could make you either poor or ugly, what would you pick? And Ruby Turpin says, I don't know, and she would sit up sweating herself awake because she didn't know how she would possibly live with either of those realities. And when she woke up in the morning, she tells the people in the waiting room, she just thanked God she wasn't poor or ugly. In the corner of this waiting room, there's a college student named Mary Grace who's reading a book for college. And as she's listening to Ruby really talk about how thankful she is, that she is who she is, and not like some other folks, even folks sitting in the same waiting room, Mary Grace is becoming very, very, very agitated and angry. And right at the peak of Ruby Turpin's self-adulating joy in her own beauty, all of a sudden, the book that Mary Grace is reading is hurled across the room and hits Ruby Turpin in the head, knocking her to the ground. And Mary Grace leaps on top of her and says to Ruby, go to hell, you wart hog!" Well, this clearly messes with Ruby a little bit. She's troubled by this encounter. The doctors pull off Mary Grace. She dusts herself off, and she goes home. And she's outside and their little small farmstead and she's looking up at the sky and she's troubled by that words go to hell you warthog because she liked to think of herself as heavenly bound not hell bound she liked to think of herself as well to do beautiful thank God made her wonderful and not like other folks And she looks to the heavens and she demands an answer from God why would you do this to me I am a good fearful our God-fearing, church-going woman. Why would you send this child into my life to do this to me? And in response, the story closes with what Ruby saw in the heavens. And it was a long parade of people entering into glory. And it was all of the people she thought she was better than going first. It was every person she had mocked in the waiting room for being less than. It was every, it was all creation that she deemed herself superior to, in fact. And only at the end, the very end of the parade, was there a spot for her. And she leaves that vision chastened. Church, I do not believe that the presence of this book of life in the hands of the Lamb is an image about the narrowing of salvation at all. I think that it is rather a symbol that we all, all of us, dead or alive, will be judged by God according to our works, and all of us, dead or alive, rich or poor, righteous or unrighteous, will be found wanting. All have sinned, the scriptures say, and fall short of the glory of God. Which is another way of saying all of us are going to show up to the new Jerusalem and we will find ourselves outside of the city limits. The books of our works will condemn us. But, and I love the way Revelation 20 puts it, books were opened and also another book was opened. The book of life. It's like John is saying, the whole world is going to be judged according to our works, but good news, church, the final word is not our work at all, but it will be the Lamb's witness, the Lamb's book, the Lamb's registry, which was written before the world was created. And who among us is going to rise up in offense at who our Lord Jesus chooses to welcome into his kingdom. Who among us will presume on that day to stand up and decide who is in and who is out? Salvation belongs to our God, Revelation says, and to the Lamb, not to the church. The good news is that determining who is in and determining who is out is not part of the calling of the church. Church, we're freed from making that decision. Christ writes the book and Jesus will offer his mercy and pardon wherever he will. The challenge to the church is will we follow such a savior? Will we live out our lives in praise of Christ? Will we serve those in need in the name of Christ and will we Leave the dispensing of salvation to him alone. We've talked about the temple. We've talked about the light. We've talked about the book. Lastly, we talk about the throne. In Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4, it says, Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The good news is that there is a throne at the center of this cosmic reality. And it is not empty. There is somebody sitting on the throne. I know that those here, you here, who have endured heartache, and sorrow you may have had a well intentioned friend or sibling or cousin say to you the words God is in control and maybe in the midst of your suffering it felt like a cat of nine tails lashing you because if God is in control then why is this happening you might have asked the truth Is that God is in control we just forget and we don't know how to live in that reality the reality is right now the world seems precarious marked by both order and chaos marked by both joy and sorrow but it does not take away the truth That John saw here in Revelation 22. There is a throne, and somebody is sitting on it, and that somebody will bring this world to its proper end. The challenge to the church in this reality is will we now seek that kingdom that has been expressed through Jesus Christ? Will We seek the way of Christ now for our church, for our families, for ourselves, for this city, for this county, for our nation, for the world. Will we find ways to pursue the kingdom that Jesus expresses? Because that kingdom is going to eclipse our own reality one day, and the throne will be revealed to all people. In the New Jerusalem... There is no temple. There is no sun. There is no human works that control the day. There is no other ruler save the one seated on the throne. Here we gather as Christ's church to find ways of living now with that end in mind.